Hello, welcome back to Resurrections and Adam Warlock Podcast. This is episode nine, and again, I am your host, Al Sedano, and I have a co-host again this time. Say hello, John. Hello, John. This week we have John M. Wilson from, tell people where you're from. Um, well, I grew up in the North Dallas area, uh, but I've also spent a lot of years in Connecticut and in East Texas, and now I'm in Florida. But um, you can't actually type any of those into a website. Well, you can type those into a web search, but they won't find me. But if you did searches for things like the New 52 Adventures of Superman or Avengers Inspirations or Golden Age Superman or the Star Wars Saga cast, those would all come to find things that I do on the Internet and, and that you are welcome to take part of. Cool. Well, I knew about the Texas and the Florida. I did not know about Connecticut. Yes, Connecticut was three years for my wife to get her doctorate. We were driving around, you know, you know, in Texas one day, and she tells me that she got accepted to the doctoral program in Connecticut, that she had just applied on a whim, not expecting to get in. And I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's so sweet. And it kind of made me think of um, the movie Mona Lisa Smile. Mona Lisa Smile is a Julia Roberts, Julia Stiles film, and it's in the 50s and about how women in higher education – should do something with it and not just go back and be a housewife. And Julia Roberts is the, basically she's the same role that, Oh crap. What's his name? Robin Williams. The guy from dead poet society. Robin Williams. Yeah. Robin Williams, like Robert. No, that's not right. She's basically the same kind of character that Robin Williams is only, you know, without the, the same genitalia. And, um, so Julia styles is this student who is probably her brightest top student. And she applies to Yale. And at the end of the film, they find out that, yay, she got into Yale. And Julia Roberts is so excited. She's like, you know, you're going to get to go to Yale, have all these experiences, blah, blah, blah. And Julia Stiles is actually um, not wanting to do that. Although she has respect for everything that Julia Roberts has been trying to accomplish in the film, with women seeing another life possible, she honestly, truly, at the bottom of her heart, wants to be a upper-class housewife. I think I saw this movie. And so they're basically like, you know, we're so proud of her. We're always going to have this accomplishment that she got in. Yay, that's so great. And so whenever Bess is telling me that she got in to the most prestigious university in her field's doctorate program, I'm like, yay, that's so awesome. I'm so proud of you. Because why would we ever leave Texas? And 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 then we moved to Connecticut a few months later. So um, <laughs> <laughs> stayed there for three years while my wife uh, studied um, gifted education and educational psychology and all those other wonderful things. Cool. It's actually kind of funny that you spent most of your life down there and then we're up here for three years. And I spent most of my life up here in this area, except for three years in Florida. Oh, that is funny. Where are you? Uh, right now, I'm in New Jersey. Okay. But I lived in Florida. I mean, I was much younger, so it was, very, it was early 80s. So I was like five, six. But we lived uh, right outside of uh, Daytona Beach. Oh, okay. Well, I drove through Jersey and thought about all the jokes that Spider-Man has made over the years. Yes. <laughs> Only half are true. <laughs> but the other way of looking at it is that, yeah, really, half of those are probably true. I <laughs> So as you can see from listening to this intro, we are ready to talk about Adam Warlock. I am anxious and eager and excited to talk about some Adam Warlock. I love me some Warlock. Now, 
when did you first start reading Adam Warlock? Or is it just recently, or have you read anything previous? Okay, so I ran across the character. Um, I, well, I'll just back up a little bit. I was born, no, not that far. Um, when I was young, I grew oh. up on Spider-Man comics, and I started collecting them off the shelves in the it, late uh, part of 1990. And my first like Marvel event that I was aware of, that I read and picked up, was Infinity War. In the first issue of Infinity War, Adam Warlock encounters the Magus, and we get some background, some brief paneled flashbacks of their history together, and I was absolutely fascinated by the background story we got for the character there. There were no editor's notes, surprisingly, pointing you to any of the stories, either the original run or the 1980s reprint series, there were no editor's notes pointing you to any of that, so I didn't know where to go to get those books. And even if I had none, I'm not sure if I would have had the money to go and get those books. But Adam Warlock yeah. always held this fascination for me, and I read him all the way through Infinity War. Uh, I started collecting Warlock in the Infinity Watch, and then um, I kind of lost interest. I don't really know why I did. I think it had to do with only having so much money to spread around, and 2099 was starting up, and I was really all about that, so... I sort of left Adam Warlock behind. Then whenever I dropped comics altogether at Maximum Carnage and then came back after the Iron Man film, I was curious about where Adam Warlock was. At that time, he was dealing with the post-Annihilation stuff, and he was with the Guardians of the Galaxy, so I read some of that. And then a couple years ago, maybe a year ago, yeah, probably was sometime in 2013, I was reading through some Bronze Age Marvel, and I decided, hey, Adam Warlock. So I read the Starlin run. Then I went back a few months later and read the entire Adam Warlock catalog from the 60s and 70s, all the stuff you've talked about so far, the Roy yeah. Thomas, Mike Friedrich series, and then the Jim Starlin run again, and gained a whole new appreciation for the whole thing. Uh, because Jim Starlin does some stuff with the metaphor that Roy Thomas did that kind of blew my mind at the time that I read it. But, you know, in the 1970s American culture, there was a lot of exploration of the concept of religion and how much use it has after having come in, you know, since the whole idea was counterculture and no longer the, um, oh, what's the word for like the establishment, no, yeah. you know, kind of going against the establishment or at least not, maybe not against, but at least away from the establishment and the establishment at the time was Protestant Christianity and looking to see what else there was besides. Yeah. And just kind of exploring the ideas behind that. What is this really all about and what use we really have for it? And I think that this, the Warlock series does a lot to talk about that. And I, 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 I found it fascinating that a comic book was doing this in 1976 or seven or whatever oh, yeah. it was. Well, yeah, well, um, the Starlin stuff was like 76. This stuff is right now is like 72. I think it's a little bit of a lightning in a bottle type of thing, because if you try to do this kind of thing now, I think comics readers are so jaded and so, I'm just going to say, so know-it-all that they would yeah. see, not only would they see through it immediately, but they would chastise the writer for having the gall to do such a thing that was so transparent, because it is transparent. Oh, very much so. And also, I think that'd be a big problem now, because either people would be bitching that they weren't going far enough with it, 
or everyone would be complaining, like what me and Brian were talking about in the last episode, where you actually see Jesus on the cross, and people would be complaining, oh, so you're saying that is the real religion and all the rest of us are wrong. You know, like, I think they would be stuck damned if you do, damned if you don't right now. Right. And at the time, like you said, that was kind of still the establishment of, well, this is what happened. So therefore, they were able to put it in there, and not that they were saying, if you're Jewish or Muslim or anything else, you're wrong. They're just saying, this is kind of what we just go with as true. So we're putting it in there. But yeah, so I'm fascinated by the series. When I heard you were starting up the podcast, I kind of kicked myself in the the butt for not having done it first. And so I I was very uh, happy to come get the chance to come on here and, and talk with you about it. Well, I think you've had enough podcasts that, you know, I don't think you've had time to do everything. <laughs> I'm going to podcast about every comic I like forever. No, I can't do that. No, I know, but there's a list of things I would still like to do. Yeah. At some point. But we'll get to that eventually. Maybe. Hopefully. Hopefully. All right, but for now then, we're going to uh, jump over real quick to a quick synopsis of the up. Ep- issue, so that way, if you haven't read it, you can at least follow along when we talk about it afterwards, and then me and John will be back to discuss the issue. Marvel premiere number two, The Hounds of Helios, cover date May 1972, with an on-sale date of February 29th, 1972, and a cover price of 20 cents. Written by Roy Thomas, art by Gil Kane, letter by Herb Cooper, Cover art by Gil Kane and either Dan Adkins or Joe Sinnott, depending on which source you use to look it up. This issue begins with Warlock, because he's not called Adam yet, laying unconscious in what appears to be the desert at night. Four people can be seen running towards his body. The one in front says, That guy! He came falling right out of the sky, like some kind of shooting star. It's a wonder he's not plastered all over the California countryside. So, we know from that, that instead of bringing him gently to Earth, something must have gone wrong with the High Evolutionary's teleporter, or he's just a jerk. We also know that Warlock is now in California. When they get close to him, we can see that the people are teens, or very young adults. Three guys and one girl. They debate a bit over where Warlock could have come from, and if he really has gold skin. One of them goes to touch the body, to see how cold it is, so he can guess how long it's been dead but is shocked to discover that it's very hot. This confuses him, as if it was that hot, it should have burnt up in the atmosphere. The boy who looks to be the youngest, and who's called Eddie, gives us this young man's name, Dave, as he tells Dave that the body is waking up. They ask Warlock who he is, but Warlock has no memory and can't tell them. They decide to help him and bring him to his feet and to a nearby barn for some shelter. During this time, we find out the name of the third man, Jason, who is African-American. Warlock finally awakens, and the four youths introduce themselves. We already have the names of the three guys, but the girl is Ellie, Eddie's twin sister. Warlock still cannot remember anything of his past, except now that he can remember that he was told men would call him Warlock. Ellie decides this is not much of a first name, and decides they will call him Adam. And now finally... We have Adam Warlock. Jason is starting to get a bit frustrated with the whole situation and starts to argue with David. They are stopped by Adam and something happens to them when they look into his eyes. In space above Counter-Earth, the High Evolutionary narrates for his journal the recent events that have happened. According to him, 
Adam was severely affected by the teleporting process that took him to the planet's surface. Since David and the others saw him falling to the ground, I think the fault lies with the High Evolutionary. The High Evolutionary then starts a flashback of Marvel Premiere 1, in case he forgot to put it in his journal before. He tells of how he found Adam's cocoon floating in space, just before starting his greatest experiment, creating a second Earth. This Earth was to orbit the Sun in the exact opposite position of the original, and was to be a paradise. However, the man-beast was able to sneak aboard the ship while the High Evolutionary slept, and brought back the baser emotions of mankind that the High Evolutionary was trying to suppress, so that this Earth would repeat the sins of the original. We also learn of one additional thing that the man-beast has done to counter-Earth. He made sure that he would face no real resistance, and prevented the creation of any super-beings. In this issue, we find out the fate of three who were known as heroes on the original Earth. Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic of the Fantastic Four, on this planet works just as a scientist, and works alongside another familiar name, Victor Von Doom, or Dr. Doom as we know him. On the original Earth, they are mortal enemies. On this, they are colleagues. We also learn that Bruce Banner never became the Hulk, but we have no idea how any of these were prevented. The High Evolutionary continues to recount how he then fought the Man-Beast and his army of animals genetically altered to be part human, and how he would have died if Adam did not choose to leave the safety of his cocoon and help. The Man-Beast and his army then fled to Counter-Earth to now physically conquer it. The High Evolutionary wanted to destroy his flawed creation, but Adam convinced him to give it a chance and vowed that he would defeat the Man-Beast. The scene then switches to the Man-Beast's hidden base, Wundagore 3, as he calls what we will learn is his number 2, Cobra. Cobra, as you can guess, was evolved from a snake. Cobra reports that they have found out where Adam is, and they call on another of the Man-Beast's minions, Rodan, Master of the Hounds of Helios, to find and destroy him. Rodan is an evolved rat, by the way. Rodan leaves in his chariot, which is pulled by the aforementioned Hounds of Helios. The hounds look like giant wolves with rat tails, white wings coming out of their sides, very small front legs, and back legs that resemble the talons of a hawk or some other large bird of prey. He hopes that one day his triumphs will be greater than Cobra's, and that Rodan will be second only to the man-beast. Slight spoiler, that is not going to work out well for him. We now go back to Counter-Earth, to a Rolls-Royce with a broken air conditioner, driving somewhere in California. Inside are four men. The driver is Marlowe, and he's a private investigator who has found the missing children of the three men in the back. They are identified as Colonel Barney Roberts, who's one of the men in charge of the first H-bomb tests. Senator Nathan Carter, who, as Marlowe says, would advocate bombing Burbank if he thought he would get a state of defense contract. And Josiah Gray, who, again, according to Marlowe, gives black capitalism a bad name. The Rolls pulls up to the barn, we saw Adam in earlier, and it becomes clear that these are the fathers of Adam's four new friends. We learn that David's father is the senator, Ellie and Eddie's dad is the colonel, and Jason's is Josiah Gray. Apparently, the three men did not come to force their children to come back home, but to just ask why they left. David responds that if they had to ask the question, they will never know the answer. The colonel tries to explain that while they see everything military as part of one giant machine for oppression, it can be used for good things too. 
Jason says that all the adults care about is power and money, and they don't want any part of it. Josiah says that they want to understand, and can't the kids agree that they at least are not bad men? This is when Adam joins the conversation, and tells Josiah that that is exactly the problem. The three parents are shocked by his appearance, since he is in a bright red costume and his gold skin with a jewel stuck on his head after all, and demand to know who he is and what he is and why he's with their children. Adam calmly responds that they had asked as many questions before, perhaps the kids would not have left. The senator gets fed up with Adam and orders Marlo to shoot him. Before he can, Marlo is attacked by one of Rodan's hounds. Before it can reach him, Adam leaps in between the two and fights the hound, quickly snapping its neck. The shock of the battle frees Adam's mind, and he can now remember who he is and why he's on Counter-Earth. He then levitates up to face Rodan and the final hound, leaving the eight humans very shocked. Rodan orders his remaining hound to kill Adam, but Adam uses the gem on his forehead to turn the monster back into its true form of random solar impulses. Rodan then flees into the barn, and Adam follows. We don't see any of their confrontation, but hear a loud, Squee! And then Adam walking out alone. The parents are very confused, and don't believe the story their children tell them of how they found Adam. Adam shows back up, and tells David it was time they left, and saw no more of these people. David agrees, but asks Adam not to hurt them, as they aren't bad men. Well, except maybe David's father and Adam again responds that that might have been the problem. He then has the three men look into his eyes, and because of that, they see the horrors that they have created for their world. They and men like them, and the problem is that none of them who created it were actually bad men. The parents leave in shame, and Adam and his new friends prepare to also leave. Ellie asks Adam what happened to Rodan, and Adam tells her that he does not kill, but just turned him into what he truly was. Inside the barn, we could see a rat, which was most likely Rodan before, which has been killed by the cat that was inside the barn. Okay, we're back, and we're now going to talk about the issue itself. So, let's see, I guess we'll start from the beginning. Uh, what do you think of the cover? Okay, so I was looking at this cover, and I'm just going to say it with this one, so I don't get repetitive with other covers and other episodes. They were really doing something different with this story, and I feel like the covers could have offered us something other than standard superhero dust-up kind of fare. I mean, the cover's fine. As a composition, you got Adam Warlock in the foreground about to whirl around and and lay the beat down on the man-beast who's firing some sort of gun at him while riding a rat-dog-dragon thing. (laughs) And I'm not sure exactly what I would want it to be instead, but I liked the first issue's cover a lot. This cover and the others, I mean, they're fine. They're great comic book covers, but there's a little voice inside of me that that feels like they missed an opportunity to do something new and different. Yeah, they don't exactly show you that the story is different than or trying to be different than other ones. I mean, it's a decent enough cover of this one. It kind of gives you everything you need to. I mean, it does give you a bit of what you need to know. You know, you can see, okay, Adam Warlock. There's the main guy right there. There's the guy who's fighting this issue, and then you have the man beast over overheads. So you kind of know who the two villains are, and you even have the only people on there are his supporting cast mm-hmm. you know really small so it kind of gives you an idea of like okay supporting cast hero villain and in that respect it works fine 
But in the fact that they were trying to do something different with this series, it doesn't give that indication at all. Right. Also, I was just thinking, you got some blackening going on around his eyes in this image, and that's an effect that seems to come and to go with the whims of the artist. Because oh, sometimes... Yeah. yeah. Sometimes he has, like, a black, star-shaped darkness around his eyes, and sometimes he... Most of the time, in fact, he just doesn't. So I don't know exactly yeah. what it means when it shows up. And that happens for a long time, because I remember that in some of the Starlin stuff. Where it just happens sometimes? Black around, yeah, the black around his eyes. I remember that being there, too. So, but when we get to the splash page, of course, it's gone. He's just laying there, conked out, and it's a beautiful splash page. Oh, yeah. No, it's a great page. I mean, the Gil Kane artwork is awesome. I mean, I only have many complaints. Few ones, but not many. And it's mostly just design or the way he does, you know, minor quibbles. The soul gem is blue, and I think it's blue throughout. It's not that the color really matters, especially since it's the only gem there is right now. It's kind of like early cool. kryptonite stories. Before green kryptonite became a thing, kryptonite had it, was colored a few different ways. Its first appearance, it was red. Oh, really? But it still behaved like green? Yeah, I mean, kryptonite, it was just kryptonite. They never even called it green kryptonite because kryptonite was kryptonite for probably 10 years before they started introducing other colors. And by that time, green had become the, the standard way to color it. But at first, it was pretty inconsistent. Huh. I did not know that. Yes. But yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, it's the only soul gem. In fact, it's not even called the soul gem. I don't think it's been called that yet in like this, in this issue, at least. No, I, I don't think it gets that name for a I think possibly Starlin gives him that name because they do something with the Soul Gem right at the beginning of his run that was new. I don't know. We'll have to watch through this Thomas Friedrich run and see if they come up with that name. Yeah, as far as I know, at least in this issue, I have down that it's not called the Soul Gem yet. Yeah. So, so far... I think they call it a soul gem at some point in this run, but I can't say for certain. That's and I have to kind of wonder what Thomas was thinking when he put it on there. Because now you've just recently read through this whole run, so but it's been a, a few months or a year since I last read it through. I don't know how much they that Roy Thomas uses it, or if he uses it for anything. He just puts the gem on the guy's head. It actually does have a... It is used for one particular thing throughout this run. Okay. So that was probably in his mind. I kind of envisioned it as, like, at the end of Star Trek Two, whenever Spock puts his mind melt on McCoy and says, remember? They had no clue what that meant when they did it. They just knew that they could do that moment and use it to spin a story out for the sequel if they want to bring Spock back. They had no idea how they were going to use it. They just put something there that they could use. And so I was just wondering if in Marvel Premiere 1, he just put that on there for an idea for later, and maybe he did or didn't know what he was going to do with it. That's actually something Brian and I talked about last episode, because he gets it literally, like, the last page, or next to last page, he kind of just flips it to him and goes, here, you'll learn about this later. You know, we were trying to figure out, like, did they just, you know, just think about it at the last minute, or did, you know, Gil Kane forget about it, and, you know, right. Back and redraw that last page and go, oh, yeah, it's here. Yeah, but, it's, it's on there. It's on, don't worry. But actually, <laughs> basically what he uses it for in this run is it kind of uh, shows, tr uh, I want to say like almost like shows truth, or at the very least it puts things the way they should be, because that's how he changes all the new men that he fights 
that he doesn't get killed back to their real form of an animal. Is the gem okay. back. And I'm wondering, actually, now that I've reread these issues, if it wasn't so much they forgot about it or like didn't know what they were going to do with it, if they had this plan and then kind of like when they got near the end of like as they're actually doing the first issue, realized, hey, how is he going to do this? Let's give gotcha. him a gem or something. Let's give him a gem. And maybe that's why it ends up on the last page, not because they didn't, they just thought of it last minute, you know, they didn't know what they're going to do with it, but maybe kind of they thought of it last minute and that, you know, almost literally, like I said, redraw that last page and throw something on there, have him give him the gem so he has a weapon. Because up to this point, most of Adam's powers were physical. I mean, well, there were some, no, there were plenty of energy powers, but nothing that would really show him changing, you know, new men back to their animal form or revealing the man beast from like, you know, being hidden as a human until back to the man beast. And the high evolutionary says, when he puts it on there, I spoke of a boon, something which may protect you from the snares of the man beast or which may not. This emerald blazing like a great green star upon your brow, of which you shall learn more anon. And it really sounds like he doesn't know what this is. It certainly doesn't seem like this, based on what you said about what they're going to use it for, that doesn't seem like the uh, apt description here. But, oh well. It, it, yeah, it's either or. I, I mean, it seems like no matter what, it was kind of almost an afterthought. You know, whether they decided, oh, we need this to be able to make them change them, them back to animal form, or they just kind of thought of it last, you know, thought of it and said, we'll figure it out later. Either way, the soul gem seems to be an afterthought, which is kind of funny considering all the importance that the soul gems have had in the Marvel Universe since then. <laughs> that the origin kind of seems to be almost a whim. Well, the um, the the hippies show up. Yes. And that's really, I guess we can even call it that with a capital H, because that's basically what they are. They are the incarnation of 1970s youth. Oh, yeah, and, they've popped out from society. Right. Their parents are all from the different branches of the establishment. We'll talk about that when they show up, I guess. But one that I did have in this conversation, I like how this is 1972. And the white guy is telling the black guy not to judge based on skin color. And not only that, but he tells him not to be a Ku Kluxer. And I'm I thinking that David that. is lucky he did not get a face full of knuckles, because Jason's not the most level-headed personality around, after all. No, and I've never heard of that term, a Ku Kluxer. I mean, I've heard of the Ku Klux Klan, but not right. Ku Kluxer. <laughs> like, I have to wonder if that was actually a term used back then, or did Roy just make it up? You know, it's the sort of thing that could go either way, because obviously lingo changes and some things go away, but also people writing comic books who try to use lingo could make things up. Yeah, and I mean, Roy Thomas wasn't that far away from the ages that they're supposed to be. I mean, I get the impression they're somewhere between the ages of, like, 16 and 20, and he was around 30. So, I mean, he was far enough away, but not so far that he would have no contact with people that of that generation and that subculture. Right. But yeah, it's comic writing in the 70s, so yeah, if anyone's read Teen Titans from that time, they know stuff is made up constantly. Oh, yes, Bob Haney. We love you. Yeah. But another thing, when you're talking about when he calls Jason a Ku Kluxer, in the next page, is uh, page three, Jason accuses Dave of giving him the middle class stare. And it's kind of funny because later on you realize they're all rich. None of them are even middle class. It's not like Jason is the stereotypical angry black youth in the 70s who comes from the ghetto. 
Jason's a but, rich kid. But the, he's playing that role for whatever reason. Yeah. Probably just for the sake of the characterization and the plot. Yeah, but it's, it's just kind of funny when, you know, after reading it, when I read it the second time and I see that, I'm like, dude, you're as rich as he is. So why, why, why are you descending to stereotype if you're not that guy? Yeah. Like, in fact, I'm looking at it and I'm like, you know, your dad, you know, you're probably like the second richest one there. Like, his, his dad's a senator. Your dad's like this, you know, successful, biz, you know, super successful businessman. You're probably richer than Ellie and Eddie's dad, who was just a colonel. He was important, but he probably wasn't rich. Right. I just find the hypocrisy funny. Well, we, we get to some of our first religious commentary on the next page at the bottom. They take Adam Warlock to the barn, and he flops on the ground. And he says, uh, Eddie, the young kid who doesn't really seem to stand out much, is like, what do we do for him now, Dave? Nothing, Eddie. No marks on him. Not much we can do, I guess. Just wait. Though if we weren't so worldly wise and all, we could pray. With the light and, shining down on Adam? Yeah, they, they could pray, but they won't. Because 1970s youth doesn't really have much use for that. And these are people, these are characters who don't have a faith as they come into the story. Yeah, like they said, they're very worldly, so they know better than to have any. Right. Actually, they even start their allegory about a page before when Jason talks about, you know, we better move before he starts laying on hands. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so right there we got that. And then, yeah, Jason's kind of the uh, angry one, definitely, because he starts making fun of Adam's intelligence just because he starts petting the cat. Speaking of Adam, this is where he gets his name. Yes. And I don't have to call him him anymore, which is a pain in the grammatical butt. <laughs> I hate it whenever my, my 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 sentence subjects have the name of an object pronoun. Oh, it's just like, and then him went to go to the store. I, I, wait, how do I say that again? <laughs> you could try to put him always in the object of the sentence, but he has to do something sometimes. And you say him has to do something sometimes. You don't sound that smart. No, I feel like I feel like I'm super baby. <laughs> him and go to store him and yes. buy milk um, it, it, if we're going to comment on it we probably should mention just for those who don't know that Jesus is described um, in Christian thought as the second Adam and since Adam Warlock is there, definitely going to be taking up a Christ-like position in this story the fact that he's named Adam is is right on the nose with the metaphor Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, the name makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, I mean, Paul says that the Jesus. first Adam caused us all to fall, the second Adam brought us all back to God. Oh. That's not a quote, but that's the idea. I didn't know that. I just figured it was a better name than Jesus Warlock. <laughs> We're just going to call him Jesse. That's all we'll do. But yeah, no, that I didn't get. I mean, I got the name of the cat, but that was it. <laughs> <laughs> I got Grey Mouser. Nice. But beyond that, I didn't catch the Adam, I didn't understand the Adam part fully then. Alright, so then, yeah. So they're in the barn, hanging out, and then we go back to the High Revolutionary for a flashback. I did write down, I, I tied it with page six, but I'm not sure why I tied it with page six, because there's nothing that's written here that, I guess is the bottom of page five, he has forgotten his origin. He's forgotten his connection to the High Evolutionary. And if you want, if, if we'll take it this far, he has forgotten his connection with divinity. 
So here we oh, have yeah. Jesus walking the world, forgetting that he's sent from God. Yeah, Adam has no memory of anything. That's right. He just remembers that he was told, told men would call him warlock, and that's it. Which and I do wonder think- why Roy Thomas structured the story that way. Maybe just to add some mystery at the beginning here, because next issue he gets all that back. Oh yeah, he, in fact, he gets it back at the end of the very end of this one. But yeah, oh, is, okay. Fight. I was thinking of the conver- the big debate that he has with the high evolutionary in, in the first part of next issue. I got the idea: the high evolutionary uh, transport equipment is not really that good. And then, but it gives the high evolutionary reason to you know give us a flashback. And yeah, we in case you missed the first issue of Marvel premiere, and this is a different way. And okay, so there, in the second panel of the flashback or the second panel of the flashback page, Adam Warlock has no eyes, but he has the big black shades around them again. So and I don't know do what get, that's all about. And we do get some new info in the flashback, because we learn uh, about uh, Doctor Doom, Mr. Fantastic, and the, the Hulk, or, you know, they're doppelgangers in this world. Yeah, the, and, and these non-superhero characters do come into play later in the story, so I don't know if he was planning to do that at this point, but I think it's neat to sort of put that in the mythos. It's sort of like the Earth Prime idea, that there are no superheroes on this world except for the one in our story. Exactly. Although this one this one uh, still has those characters, because I believe like in Earth Prime, there is no, you know, for the most part, there is no Barry Allen or Bruce Wayne. You know, there's no doppelgangers of the characters with the exception of Superboy Prime. Okay, I didn't realize that. I haven't read any of yeah, those stories. From what I remember of Earth Prime, there's no doppelgangers of uh, the main characters. Okay. Well, this has but, um, a non-super Banner, Richards, and Doom, and those characters come into play later, which is cool. Yeah, although it's funny, Doom still has his mask on. Oh, he does. He's not on. He still but has for other mask. reasons. He's not. Yeah, well, it looks like the same thing. I mean, when we get to the, the issue that does the Doom origin, just to jump real quick, he does have an accident. He doesn't specify what it is, so I don't know if it's the same act experiment that in the regular Marvel Universe, or regular Marvel Earth that caused it, but he still has an accident and still puts the mask on. He just doesn't go crazy evil as a result. Exactly, because he's still buddy, he's buddy, buddy with Reed Richards. So what you're saying is that by kicking Doctor Doom out of the university, that's the event that makes the Marvel Universe happen. Possibly. Actually, I think it's just the fact that Doom's more of a douche in the original Marvel Universe. Because <laughs> this is true. This him is and true. Reed were, were not really friends or roommates beforehand. And this one, they're roommates. In the original Marvel stuff, it's... Uh, Reed Richards and Ben Grimm, the thing that are college roommates. That the Doom's just a classmate, but he's not a roommate. When they recount the creation from last issue, after he spends his time making the world, he rests, which is again another Bible uh, metaphor or allegory. And it's after he rests that the man beast, who is also a creation of the high evolutionary, comes down and fills the world with evil. Yes, the snake comes in. Now, Warlock talks about last issue how he was in the cocoon evolving and so whenever he starts talking to the high evolutionary on the on the screen which i'm not exactly sure how that works there's not exactly a camera inside the cocoon looking at his face but you know whatever um he says that he's been evolving since last time so i guess clothes are an important part of the evolution here yes and his clothes are apparently organic which is kind of gross yes well all of our clothes are organic. 
Or yeah, but I mean, his are, his part, are of part of him. Yeah, it goes back to the whole nude mystique thing that you and Brian talked about last time. Yeah. Kind of weird. I always wonder, like, can they come off then? Especially later on when he gets a cloak. Right, right. He takes it off. I'm like, um, did you just, like, you know, rip off part of your skin? <laughs> Ow. Ow. That would hurt. Ouchie. Ouchie, ouchie, ouchie. And then the man-beast flees the presence of the high evolutionary in order to dwell in the metal, the, the mortal realm below. Well, after Adam does an ass kicking. Yes. Which is, a, I think, a bit where the uh, they go a bit away from the Jesus allegory, because that's not really turning any cheek whatsoever. That's more putting a boot up the cheek. Well, it goes back to the idea um, in Christian thought of there being a war in heaven before the days of man. Oh, yeah, that's right. So he's kind of taking on both roles. He's taking on, like, an archangel role as well as the messiah role. Uh, well, that, that Satan, yeah, right, 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 because Satan fought against Michael, according to the according to the story. So, yeah. Um, so the man-beast fights a war on the satellite and doesn't win, so he flees the, the presence of the high evolutionary to go live in, in the... Uh, the world below that he's created. And then the high evolutionary decides that he's going to destroy his creation. But warlock yeah. intervenes and pleads on their behalf and asks to go live among them so that he can deliver them from the man beast. Yes. Which is definitely then back to the allegory part, or at least the Messiah allegory. Yeah. Like we said, this is not, this is not, um, it's not a straight up retelling. But it, it's it is tra- it's not uh, trying to cover up the fact that it's an allegory. This is a very transparent allegory. Yeah, but yeah, at least in right parts. There. In parts, there, there's some other story that's going to come along in a minute. But there's a lot of just, I mean, the line that was in the wardrobe doesn't hold a candle <laughs> to this one. <laughs> to how obvious it is, yeah. But yeah, I didn't realize I didn't think about the whole war in heaven part. I mean, I knew I thought about it, but I didn't think about Adam's role in it. But you're right, yeah, he's taking on a couple of different roles in this allegory. He's right. not just I the didn't one. think about the fact of the fact that uh, Jesus and Michael were actually separate roles in there. But yeah, and it does fit them because he's supposed to be the like you said a lot. A lot of it's him playing the Messiah allegory, but the Messiah allegory is also about you know not beating the crap out of people, which Adam does a lot. He does. So, but if he if he's also playing the archangel, you know, the archangel role, the warrior, then he gets to do both. You know, gives a reason for him doing both, and it still works. Because at times he's one aspect, at times he has the other. And whenever he gets down to whenever whenever we get to next issue, the nature of his role on the planet and how it's different from Christ's role in the Christian story is going to come into play. Because there are even though there are a lot of parallels and a lot of the, the, the chess pieces are in the same position on the board in both stories. I think Adam Warlock and Jesus Christ are two very different people in their, yeah. in their nature, their attitudes toward what they want to get done. Yes. Yes. No, definitely. Adam has a slightly different mission. I mean, same kind of overall effect in a way of saving people, so to speak, and not just in the actual, you know, Superman, you know, Spider-Man, I'm saving you from falling but in a soul type of way. And um, the big purple-helmeted god says, I would have destroyed my counter-earth, even then with the flick of a finger, rather than let it suffer further corruption. But the Nameless One vowed to save it, both from the man-beast and from itself. 
Yeah. And that's where the flashback ends. And so then we go to Man Beast uh, sending his men out to uh, get Adam. And what is the Man Beast chief lieutenant? A serpent. Cobra. Yep, Cobra. And we have, yeah, we get introduced to Cobra, who's a snake one. Like you said, he's a serpent. And we also have Rodan, the rat guy. The rat guy. Who is actually the one driving the Hounds of Helios, but he's not the one doing it on the cover. The Man Beast is definitely the one driving the dragons on the on the cover. But these hounds look very different from the one in the cover. Well, yeah, maybe not. This is just color. They're very weird looking, though. I mean, when I first read it, I mean, they're large wolves of wings with back legs that are more like uh, vultures or uh, some kind of bird of prey. You know? Yeah, talons. talons. But actually, the first time I read it, it, I didn't think they had front legs. I thought their front legs were the wings. You actually, I actually had to look really close. And the front legs look like they're being bound down by the harness. Oh, yeah, that's going to be uncomfortable. Like, they're almost completely useless. They look like the T-Rex legs, almost. Right. Huh. And then after this, this is when you get introduced to the, parent, the kid's parents. Just before we do that, I do have to make oh. one little uh, vocabulary note here. They yeah. say that they snared these creatures from the solar storms of the star sun, Helios. Um, Helios is just Greek for the sun. To, to my knowledge, there is no star out there that we have named Helios. So he's just making that up. But hey, it's fiction. So if you're going to make something up, fiction's a good place to do it. Yeah, yeah, generally better than, you know, a checkbook. Hey, as long as I have checks in the checkbook, I have money. And that's true, right? Because that's how I go. Yeah, that, 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 that always works for me. All right, so yeah, now we get the, the kids' parents, and this is where we learn, like I said earlier, that their parents are all at least wealthy. As these kids do not come from an impoverished background. Not even a little bit. And they basically represent the four major pillars of the establishment, because we have government, military, yeah. and capitalism. I say four. There are four kids. Three parents. I'll just say two the, four. Yeah, two of the kids <laughs> are siblings, but yeah. Um, the White House, the guns, and the money people money. are all... And all three of these guys are beholden to corrupt elements, even right here at the beginning of the story. So, yes, our four protagonists supporting cast characters are basically the definition of hippie. And plus we get a private investigator, which is always fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, Marlowe, who was based, most likely based on the uh, character Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler from, from the story The Big Sleep, who was and then in movie versions was played by Humphrey Bogart and then Robert Mitchum in the 78 version. Okay. So I thought that I thought that was a neat little touch. I know it's actually Roy Thomas likes to put a lot of these things in his stories. He likes to put a lot of uh, versions of characters that he must, I guess likes. I mean, it doesn't have anything to do with the base of his story. It's just kind of a fun little Easter egg, I thought. Yeah, yeah. He, I, I really like Roy Thomas. I mean, I'm sad that he's not doing anything now because he did so much in the 70s and 80s for comics. Oh yeah. Well, he created I mean, a lot of stuff that we all. The foundation of a lot of things. He was basically the Golden Age comics fan who got to write Silver and Bronze Age comics and bring back all of his characters he loved as a kid in a new and modern form. And that yeah. helped really to enrich so much of the Pantheon. I mean, the Vision, favorite fan-favorite Avengers character, Golden Age Revival, Roy Thomas did it. And some of them didn't last as long, like the Red Raven... 
didn't no. really take off in X-Men comics, but hey, you can't win them all. No, I mean, he's also a big reason why Hawkeye's a fan favorite in the Avengers. Right. But, but yeah, I do like Roy Thomas. And the fact that he brings in names of, of, of known characters and actors to use his characters that are sort of, you know, along the same type, that's just a fun little nod, you know. And if yeah, you get the joke, you get it. And if you don't, then it's just a character. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But, yeah, no, I always like seeing his little in, uh, Easter eggs he puts in. You know, he's just like, oh, I like this thing. You can kind of almost tell what he's reading or watching at the time. I, I, I was kind of laughing, though, because we get to the bottom of this page with the parents, and Jason's dad is look, hears the voice over his shoulder, and uh, they say, who the devil is that? And we look over, and Adam Warlock, okay, he's standing there in his fancy outfit in front of a barn, and the first thing he says is, well, your daughter, Colonel, has named me Warlock. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just... That might not have been how I would have let off that conversation. (laughs) But, you know, at least it has all the hay out of his hair. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I will say one thing for the parents. They're not trying to just drag the kids home. They're actually... They just want to talk to them. At least they say they don't want to drag them home. I mean... Some of their actions make me wonder whether that's true or not, but it, it, at the very least, it's a good idea. You know, I kind of like that. And it does kind of show that while the parents do have some issues, they're not, for the most part, not horrible, horrible, horrible people. No, they're just, I mean, they're just the man. Yeah. They stand for things that these kids can't can't stand, to use the word in different ways. Um, so it's it's a conflict of philosophy and of principle that, you know, as far as me and my ideas on parenting, it really shouldn't be ever allowed to become this big of a deal, but, you know, whatever. Well, yeah. As it is coming into the story, these kids are refusing to come home because of who their parents work for. And what they do. And what they do. And, and I would say, actually, uh, David probably is the most reason to be away, because I'm, add- I'm adding his father to the list. His dad's a dick. Yeah. And he's like, okay, I don't like this. Marlo, kill this gold guy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, all right, you're a dick. The other two, not the greatest of people, but they're not as bad as him. No. Once you pull a gun out, then things go bad. Well, they go bad a different way, though, because that's when the Holy Joe shows up. Yeah. The Holy Joe. (laughs) Well, that's what he says. He says, Holy Joe. Oh, that's right. So I guess I guess that's I guess that's the hound, the hound of hell, Leos. See what they did there? It's cold. Oh yeah. Ooh. That's why they chose that. Word name. play. Word they play. chose the name Helios because of the word hell. Okay, I just put my two and two together. Yeah, and then Mister, we have a nice little page of a uh, Adam pretty viciously fighting that thing off, and uh, Mister Peace and Love kills that thing pretty quick. It's a really nice page, but at the same oh, time, the menace of the cover and the menace in the title lasts exactly one page. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he takes that thing out quickly. I mean, there is no issue with that. There is no worry about it might beat him. It is done. And as, I heard you mention Mr. Peace and Love earlier, and I was thinking about that. 
Adam Warlock does want, you know, humanity to be good, and he has a Silver Surfer approach to, you know, how humans should live in peace and whatever, but at the same time, he's here to eradicate some evil, and now he's going to get to the eradicating. Yes, although it is funny also, uh, just jumping ahead real quick, on, like, the last page, quote, I do not kill Ellie, and I'm thinking, yeah, except for the thing you killed a few pages ago. Yeah. But other than that, he doesn't kill. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman wait, wait, from... Wait, 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 I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world, and when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. I mean, it's just kind of funny. I mean, it's one thing to have the inconsistency from issue to issue, but, you know, three pages later, he says he doesn't kill. Well, yeah. It's not a person, though, I guess. Uh, it's, it's an animal. But then Maybe. the whole new men are beast men, men beasts, so I don't know. Yeah. It's just amusing. Yeah, I don't kill, is. except for that one. Right. And the other one, but otherwise, no, no, no killing. But and, the yeah, there's not really a whole lot else before that last page. I mean, there's the action, there's the fight. The um, the Rodan guy gets... Now, you mentioned earlier that he uses the soul gem to turn Rodan into a rodent. We don't actually... Oh, that's where that name came from. Rodan, rodent. Uh, we don't actually see that happen in this story. 
He goes into the barn after Rodan. We hear a squee, and then he walks out. Oh, you're right. I completely missed that. So you actually have a little bit of a spoiler there, Mr. Sedano. Oops. Oh, well. It's only eight issues of series, right? <laughs> and only about 40, issues, 40 years old. Yeah, yeah. So if it's now, spoiled, sorry. Sorry about that. I'm going to spoil uh, Rosemary's Baby next. The morality of the story is pretty haunting. He tells the three fathers to look into his eyes. And they see through the eyes of a soldier before a bursting grenade blinds him forever. They see through the eyes of a starving Biafran, an orphaned child in Asia, a city dweller gasping unclean air into filth-choked lungs, and they know that this is their world, the world they created, they and men like them, and so few of them were bad, so very few. So you have all of these well-intentioned men creating a world of horrors. And that's basically true, and it's a really spooky oh. way to look at the world. Yeah, because most, most people in the world aren't really that evil. Everyone thinks but. that he's... Every person thinks in his or her own mind that he or she is correct. Exactly. Everyone, no one views himself as, I'm the bad guy. Right. You know, I'm the monster. Except maybe the most extreme of monsters. Monster right. people. But for the most part, no one views himself as this horrible creature. They're like, well, I'm only doing this because of this. I have to do this. And, you know, for whatever reason they have, whether it's, you know, to get the money they need or as they feel to protect their country or to uh, keep the power they have or whatever their reason is. And that brings about all these horrible things, of course. War, poverty, etc. So yeah, like I said, these parents, you know, I think that was the point, that these parents weren't bad, they just allowed bad things to happen for whatever reason. Gil Kane's art was beautiful throughout this book. Um, I've read his whole Spider-Man run. I'm currently enjoying his early Green Lantern run, which was about 10 years earlier than this um, because of my Silver Age reading project. And I really do like Gil Kane. There oh, are places in Steve Ditko's work where he feels like some, he does some of the things that Gil Kane does a lot more frequently later. So I tend to think of Ditko and Gil Kane as sort of like-minded artists. Yeah, they have a backpack angular feeling to both of them. Yeah. A lot of straight lines. And the whole looking up someone's nose thing that Gil Kane does a lot. Yeah. Like, he'll he'll (laughs) often tilt... To do a a shock and awe kind of expression, he'll come at the camera looking up at the person's face. And you get a lot of nostril in those shots. And uh, Ditko does that a couple of... A few, just a handful of times towards the end of his Amazing Spider-Man run. So I'm not sure who copied whom, although the Spider-Man run is certainly uh, several years before this was. But it's, yeah, Gil um, Kane was still working on stuff at that time as well. So yeah, they're definitely contemporaries of the work. Yeah, yeah, they were. But anyways, that's all I have on this issue. I, I thought it was a great introduction to where we're going to go with this. You know, you sort of set up the fact, hello, we're going to do... allegory and commentary on religion, specifically Christianity, in the first issue of the Marvel premiere. In the second issue, you sort of set up your cast of characters and where we're going to go with it. And since it's bi-monthly, 
by the next issue, they're ready to slap a number one on the front cover because they've gotten lots of good reviews and feedback from Marvel Premiere number one. And then they yeah, can take Marvel Premiere to do... What do they do next with Marvel Premiere? Is it, does it go to become a Thing series? No, that's that's later. That's, um, that's Marvel 2 and 1 is a Thing series. Then Marvel Premiere kind of continues on to be like this, like one or two or three issues of different characters trying out different stuff. The next issue will be uh, Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange. Marvel 2 and, and 1 I know- actually did get a couple of tryout issues before it became its own series, but it might not have been Marvel Premiere. It might have been something else. Yeah, there was a lot of Marvel whatever series back in the 70s as well. Yeah. There was Marvel Premiere, there was Marvel Spotlight, Marvel Spectacular, Marvel Team-Up, Marvel 2-in-1. Okay. Um, but yeah, but I know also the Liberty Legion gets like at least one issue, one shot later on in Marvel Premiere. Um, the uh, Legion of Monsters has an issue or two in there as well. It was kind of like their version of Showcase. I'm trying to, remember, I'm trying to figure out why Doctor... Yeah, Doctor Strange did not have an ongoing at this time. That's why he got a Marvel premiere. He hadn't had an ongoing in a while. I'm just, I, I'm just very curious, so I'm just going to take time here. To, I'm scrolling through Marvel <laughs> premiere, and it is Doctor Strange only for a while, issue three and going forward for quite some time. Iron Fist gets that's the it, that's next right. tryout. Iron Fist, he's like number 15, or yes. somewhere around there. Marvel Premiere 15 is the first Iron Fist, and he stays on for a while till he gets his own book. That's okay. kind of an eclectic mix. Hercules. Really? Hercules gets issue 26, but he doesn't get an ongoing. Satana the Devil's Daughter gets issue 27. Then it's just a bunch of one-offs after that. The Legion of Monsters, the Liberty Legion, the Man Brute called Wood God, Monarch Starstone. Wow, and they were we're really deep into seventies Marvel by this point with with Wood God and Star Stalker and the Mark of Cain. Okay, I don't know why I'm yeah. taking time to do all this. I was just curious. But Marvel Premiere has a pretty fabled run. What's yeah, that? I think issue sixty one. I think like the one of the last issues is the Doctor Who story. Yes, it is issue sixty and fifty nine and fifty eight, fifty seven. So yeah, he has a little four issue run there, and the series ends with a Star Lord story. For those of you who are going to be watching Guardians of the Galaxy in August, you have a Star-Lord story in Marvel Premiere 61. That's right. I forgot about Satana. I have that issue, actually, the original, somewhere. Really? It's a fun little twisted thing. I mean, she's not even an anti-hero. She's almost straight up a villain. Well, a lot of these tryout series that Marvel did in the 70s didn't last very long. Uh, Marvel Feature only ran 12 issues, and that was the one I was actually thinking of. Uh, earlier when I was trying to guess who was in it, because Marvel Feature has, like, an Ant-Man for a couple of issues, and that's the one oh, that yeah. ends the two issues of the thing. Um, that's and that's, that's a, the Ant-Man story. That's the Ant-Man story. He doesn't have a costume, the Ant-Man story, right? It looks like he's just wearing regular clothes. I think so. I think so. And I, I only read that the because there's a Peter Parker cameo, uh, not cameo but he's a co-feature for um, one issue before he goes on his way. And you have a lot of drama between Hank and uh, Janet in that series. They do have costumes now, flipping through covers, and there are definitely lots of costumes there. And then Marvel Feature issues 11 and 12 have the thing, and it's an early Thanos appearance, which is why I knew about that. Oh, I didn't know that one. Yeah. He's in Iron Man 55, then he's in the thing in uh, Marvel Feature 12, 
and then he goes on to do other things after that. The Thanos war over in Captain Marvel. Yeah, Thanos I mean, and Adam Warlock are on my I must read everything they've ever done list. Yeah, Thanos is on mine too because especially as it, once we get to the Jim Starlin stuff, the story of Adam Warlock half the time becomes also the story of Thanos. I was actually about to say the same thought. Yeah, they basically become intertwined. They're not so much now, I think. They but, will be again, I think, if you read the, uh, the Thanos annual that just came out. I haven't. Is, is there, are they teasing more Warlock stuff? Because I know he's gone right now. I don't know where he is. Yes. Yes, they do tease Warlock in the future a bit. Sweet. Uh, but yeah, the, the, basically Thanos describes Adam Warlock as the closest thing to a friend he has, as well as an enemy. And it's okay. true. I mean, the way they're... You've read the, the other stuff with them. They fight each other constantly. They've killed each other. Mm-hmm. But they've also worked together very well, more than anyone else could work with Thanos. You know, almost like once, they, like once they're like, okay, we're on the same side, then they just ignore everything else and they just work together. See, Thanos and Warlock, it's like with Warlock, okay, you may do some, some messed up stuff every now and then, but I know that you have a laudable goal. Maybe your at-any-cost mentality might be a little bit much sometimes, but Adam Warlock is trying to do something for some sort of good. And Thanos, even if he acts like he's trying to do something for some sort of good, I can never trust the guy. He he and may be pretending to be doing something, something worthwhile, but in the end, he's going to try to grab power. And take over the universe. And then kill half of them. Or, and they're very yin and yang in that regard. Adam Warlock has a dark spot, but he's trying to do good. Thanos might have occasional nobility, but he's pretty much all about himself. And having sex with half. Yeah. Actually, when you're talking the way you're describing it, just then it almost makes it sound like a sibling relationship. Like two brothers yeah. or sisters, you know, whatever, who are kind of start from somewhere similar, but they both go on different paths. So they're definitely not going to be buddy-buddy all the time, but they do have, like, a common bond. Because that's actually a better way you can put it, I think, with Adam and Thanos. They almost behave like they're brothers. And yeah. So, yes, they're going to fight as much as, you know, brothers can fight, you know, siblings can fight pretty viciously. But then at the time, also, as soon as it's needed to, they can also just kind of work together as well. Yeah, I like that. When it comes to comics, you get, brought, you, know, get you know, villain, you know, Enemies who will have to work together for one reason or another. But very rarely do they work as well as Adam and Thanos do when they have to. And I haven't read a lot of that because a lot of that is the 90s. Because both characters are completely off the map for the decade of the 1980s. Oh, yeah, they're completely, they're they're dead. And so I've read all of the 70s stuff for both characters. But I've only read like a little bit of the 90s. Infinity War and Infinity Gauntlet. And then a little bit after that, but not much. And so there's uh, everything after that will be completely new to me whenever. We oh, get. yeah. But not to spoil, but just to say, but yeah, that's a lot of Infinity War and Infinity Crusade. Gotcha. Is the two of them. And actually, even when Thanos first shows up in the Warlock strip, he's an ally. Yes, yes, he, he is against, in, against the Magus. You're right. Yeah. Cause even, we're, getting of, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, that's true. You're right. I'll get to that. Let's, we'll get to, I'll get to that point when I get to that, uh, those last two issues. But yeah. So that's, that's actually good as you. I like that. They're like siblings. And yeah, it is definitely, it ends up becoming the story of Thanos as well. Although they both do their own things as well, but so much Thanos is tied in with Adam Warlock. 
So, Al, I have a question. Sure. I, I, I enjoy playing uh, Warlock podcasts with you. Can I, can I come back next time? Hmm. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Please. I, I, I'll be your best. I'll make your brownies. Ooh, brownies. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> come back. I get okay. brownies. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wait. What kind of brownies? Are we talking about the little midget guys who steal babies in, you know, the world of Willow, or ones that sell cookies? I rather have the uh, little ones because the little ones are still babies because the other ones. I was going to get some cookies. pot. No, sorry, that's not that's not the kind of podcast for that joke. <laughs> as, as, I don't I don't know how much you want uh, marijuana jokes on your on your podcast, which has been relatively clean and innocent so far. Oh, whatever. Whatever. We're getting into the crazy '70s stuff where obviously most of the, you know. You're going to read stuff, and half the time you're going to assume that they're on acid anyway, the creators. <laughs> I don't know. We might as well uh, Roy start Thomas, Roy Thomas is doing now. too much careful construction of his stories here for me to think that he's too high in the middle of all this. It's coming, so we might as well just make the joke now. Yes. <laughs> Did you have anything else you want to do with this issue? I think that's, that's pretty much everything I have on the issue. He didn't really use oh. any powers this issue except for his soul uh, just punching people and then turning Rodan into a, a rodent again at the end. Yeah, hold on. I have a thing. Let's see what powers he had. Um, yeah, the only power he uses... Well, going back to the last issue, Marvel Premiere 1, the only power he uses is super strength, really. Mm-hmm. And in this one, he uh, is... Well, he obviously is someone invulnerable from the way that they describe... Uh, David describes his crashing into the Earth in between the issues, he thought he would be splattered all over, so obviously he has to have some kind of a vulnerability to keep from, you know, going splat. And then let's see what else. Levitation, because he flies, or levitates, as he says. And then he has that eye gaze power. Oh, yeah, where he uh, gets into their minds. And it looks like okay. it almost shows you what your, um... I don't know, it's almost like a a great, you know, your, um... Shows you your sins, like with the fathers, or I'm not really sure how to describe what he does with the kids, because the kids say that when they look in his, looked in his eyes, they saw a world without war and poverty and all that. So it's almost like he judges you, and depending on how you're judged, you're either punished by showing what horrible things you've done, or you're, you're given the gift of showing what the world, the world could be if you keep working at it the way you have been. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not sure exactly what they're supposed to, what they're trying to do with that. I'm trying to remember how much that's used actually in the series. There, there's definitely a certain amount of make it up as we go along. I, this character is being molded to the story, not the story to the character. Well, that's one benefit about him, Warlock. He's so malleable. I mean, they really haven't done... This is the most that's been done with him ever. I mean, up until this point. Before, he was just a nameless thing that just blew stuff up or kidnapped Sith. So they can do whatever the hell they want with him. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. His pa- but yes, his powers have pretty much gone down a lot. He had a lot of energy powers before, and now it's just kind of generic strength and vulnerability and uh, that wonky eye gaze thing is the only thing he has. Well, if memory serves, we're going to get a lot more of that back later whenever we get to later stories. But I think they're just... in Since Roy Thomas has taken the character and sort of reimagined him, and I've often... A lot of times with stories, I wonder about the creative process and how that story got to be there. So when Roy Thomas was thinking, 
about this series? Did he say, was it that he saw Warlock in some past issue of Fantastic Four or Thor and think, oh, perfect human, that's kind of like Jesus. Oh, maybe I can do something with that and come up with the story. Or was he sitting around thinking of a Jesus allegory story he wanted to tell and he found a character that he could change enough to fit his story? Like, it's, which chicken or egg? Which came first? Yeah, which, which one came first? And if it's the latter, then I suspect we won't see much of what Warlock did before because that's not what he needs him to do here. Now he's basically just some guy with some some mental powers and some strength and a whole lot of purpose. Actually, not counting the mental, the, the few mental things he has, like we said, which isn't much, it's more like strength and vulnerability and the purpose of uh, what his purpose is, reminds me a bit of a original Superman. Yeah. Original He's Superman, in the very, very earliest issues, really couldn't do much. He was yeah, super. He pretty much was what? He was strong, kind of invulnerable. I mean, he couldn't actually levitate. He could do the jumping thing, but he really couldn't levitate. But Adam, they, they make Adam say specifically, I don't fly, I just levitate. Right. Which yeah, is the next you know, issue. It's one of these issues. Yeah. So, and he is a strange visitor from another planet. <laughs> he is at that. And he does, they do kind of have similar goals because original Superman, which I think you know a bit about. A little bit. Was very bit. much, was very much less so about uh, hunting down, you know, fighting supervillains than he was about fixing society. Which is what Warlock is here to do. Exactly. So I'm wondering if that was a another maybe piece of uh, the puzzle for Roy Thomas. Or maybe how he determined um, what he wanted Adam to be able to do. Because as we said, he is a fan of Golden Age characters in the Golden Age, so obviously he read Golden Age Superman. <laughs> Everybody should read Golden Age Superman. They have an omnibus out. If there's an omnibus, that means you should read it. Yes. There's even a podcast you can listen to if you want to you know, have stuff explained to you. Really? Yes, Tell me more is. about this Golden Age Superman podcast you speak of. It goes through the issues of, of Superman. Talks about him. I think I even played a promo a few episodes ago. <laughs> well, what else some guy got? from Florida or Texas did it. I'm not sure who. Yeah, some guy. What else we got? John is the guy. <laughs> Do you want to move on to, to wrap-ups? Yeah. I think we're at that point. Okay, hold up. I might have gotten a bit ahead of myself. We're actually not quite done, so I'm going to put a pause on mine and John's conversation for a bit because there's a few things that I forgot have to be done still. And then we can go back to me and John getting to the end of the episode. First of all, we need to know where this issue's been reprinted in case any of you want to read it and don't have access to the original copy. Well, you can get it in The Essential Warlock Volume 1, which is a black and white and a little cheaper than most of our reprints. You can also get it if you want to spend a bit more money, but you'll get full color. In Marvel Masterworks, Adam Warlock, Volume 1. And also, if you want to go high-tech, you can get digital on the Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited website and app. Also, we need to check in with Adam's friends, which are the books that Adam Warlock has appeared in previously, and just see what they're up to now and where they are at the point of this issue. So this time, which is cover date, May 1972, we have Fantastic Four, number 122, This World Enslaved by Stan Lee and John Buscema. With Reed in possession of Galactus's ship, 
a stalemate is reached. Can Reed exploit Galactus' ship as a real weakness, or is the world doomed? And Thor 199, If This Be Death, by Jerry Conway, and again, John Buscema. Asgard returns to its rightful location, and Hela arrives to take Odin's soul, but is blocked when Thor places a time barrier around Odin's body. When Pluto arrives for the same purpose, the two gods of death wage battle. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Also need to remember the uh, new segment I started doing last episode, the listener location shout-out. Since, as I mentioned last time, I use Podbean to post the website, and one of the things Podbean enables you to do is see on, like, I should call a little map of the world, uh, you like, little arrows where episodes being downloaded from, and so it kind of gives you an idea of where in the world people are listening to your show. And so I've been kind of fascinated by this, about where all around the country and the world that people are listening to this, and I just kind of wanted to, each episode, give a chance to at least shout out, you know, specific area of where I'm seeing downloads coming from, and just, you know, acknowledge you and thank you for listening. So today I am talking about West Virginia, USA. Yep, West Virginia, there are a bunch of people in West Virginia downloading this show, and I thank you all. Uh, we have one mark in central West Virginia. No city is listed. It just shows it's near Route 19. So hopefully, if that's you, you know where you are. And there's also several in southern West Virginia, including near Bluefield, Mayberry, and Welch. And that's just about it to get, except we just have to give uh, thanks to a couple sites that helped out with uh, the research for this episode. I'd like to thank ComicBookDB, the Complete Marvel Reading Order, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, Stormbringer.net, and Time.com. Links to these, as well as my other shows and all of John's shows, can be found on the show notes on the Tumblr page. And now let's get back to me and John closing out the show. All right, John, I guess since you're at Brownies, I'll have you back next time. We'll talk about Warlock 1. And before we close up, let's see something real quick. I want to see if I have any emails. Do I have any emails at resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com? No, I do not. I, I, I haven't emailed you because I knew I was going to be here. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay because I have a second iTunes review. Yay! So I am all excited. This one came in on June 5th. From Winter is Coming, he gave me one, two, five stars and titled it Cosmic. By far the best Adam Warlock podcast hosted by a guy named Al from the East Coast of the United States. Seriously, really, really cornered that market. 
I have. Seriously, though, this is a great in-depth look at a character that many people think they know, but they neglect his early appearances. If you are a fan of Marvel Cosmic, well, comics at all, you should be listening. Excelsior. So, thanks, man. That's pretty awesome. That's a pretty awesome review. I like it. He's kind of right, though, because I think with Adam Warlock, if it's pre-Starlin, people just ignore it. It's like the X-Men. If it's pre-Claremont, you just ignore it. Oh, yeah. But No, that's true. I'd never really read most of the early Warlock until not that long ago. And I never yeah. read the uh, Lee Kirby stuff until I started doing the show. So it's, it's, it's weird how people draw these lines. Also, Teen Titans. If it's pre-Wolfman Perez, why read it? And actually, that's the only Teen Titans run that I've read, like a stretch of, that's not New 52, is the pre-Wolfman Perez. I haven't read anything <laughs> from the 80s or 90s into <laughs> Teen Titans. Oh, wow. That should be interesting when you get to that one. I will eventually. It's, it's on the list. I've read parts of it. I mean, I've read at least definitely uh, the first year and a half of it, of their run, and then other parts since then, and it's pretty good. But I read the whole, you know, I say the whole, there were like two. There were two Teen Titans runs in the 60s and 70s, and I've read all of that. And I'll eventually get to the other stuff. I just, I have other stuff I'm doing right now. Well, yeah. Luckily, they're not going anywhere. No, that's the thing about back issues. You don't like current comics? Back issues are always there. Yeah, and there's only, there's so many of them. Uh, back issue comics. Oh, that's right. We were doing closing. <laughs> all right, so... <laughs> Like I said, someone send an email, send an email, because that'd be cool. Um, but at least I have an iTunes review, so that's awesome. Um, you can also go to the Tumblr page for this uh, show, resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com, where I put up uh, links to things we talk about in the episode, and as well as uh, images and the issues we talk about. You can also find me on uh, another show, Four Color Fanboys, which I did with Brian Zeno, who guested on last this episode. You can find that at fourcolor.podwits.com. And then, John, where can people find you? Okay. So, just premiered, like, two days ago, over at thestarwarssagacast.com is my brand new Star Wars podcast that I am starting up. Uh, it's basically where I talk about anything I want to that's Star Wars related, although I'm starting out with some runs through the early 70s material. So we've got the novelization, we've got the comics from Marvel, we've got an in-film commentary on the original theatrical release of Star Wars, and so that's over at thestarwarssagacast.com. Also, with my daughter Lily, we're looking at the comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films over at Avengers Inspirations, which you can find by searching Avengers Inspirations or going to the Complete Marvel Reading Order website. I also am doing a run through the modern adventures of the Man of Steel at the New 52 Adventures of Superman at new52superman.libsyn.com. And on the other end of the spectrum, I do occasionally put out episodes. The show is, is not very frequent, but I do occasionally put out episodes. When I read a Golden Age story of Superman, I put out a podcast about the Golden Age story of Superman at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. So those are my podcasting endeavors. So you're, there's one or two places they can find you. Yeah, I'm around. You might have heard of me from yeah. the Internet. Hey, well, you know, that's where this is. <laughs> 
All right, so we will be back then on or about the 1st of July with episode 10, where we're, John and I will discuss Warlock number one. So we will see you all then. Looking forward to it. Bye. Bye, everybody. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock podcast, is a fan-made production, and I make no claims of ownership or copyright over Adam Warlock, Thor, or any of the Marvel comic characters that are mentioned in this episode. I make no profit off of this, and I am making no profit off of Marvel Comics characters. Please don't sue me, Disney. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peacelovedproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page. I think we're on a little bit of a delay. I think it might be part of the problem. Because uh, I say things and you don't respond to them for about three seconds. Oh, that's tough. Eh. But I, I don't think it really... We, I don't think we stumbled too many over, so too much over. No, you, you, you can tie it up in the editing studio. Yeah. I can just clip a few seconds off here and there if I have to. Yeah. But that was fun. Yes. <laughs> Oh, talking comics is always fun. You know, one person's, you know, Max, like you said, you dropped the Maximum Carnage, and I'm sure there are plenty of people who started with Maximum Carnage. <laughs> so it's just kind of funny, like, one man's, you know, horrible stories, one man's, you know, favorite. Now, as far as the rest of the evening, my wife has made dinner, so I feel like I should go and partake of it. Um, no, that's fine. Um, I know you said, besides that, you wanted, you know, wanted me to know, is there another night that's good? Um, I, I'm good most nights. In fact, my, my daughter is out of town this week. So if you wanted to do another night this week, that would be fine. Is there another day? Are you always off on Mondays or is this a special Monday? Oh, mon- no, my weekend actually is Sunday, Monday. Okay. So this why is, don't this we, during the summertime, and why I, don't we plan for daytimes on Mondays? Okay. Maybe a little bit earlier so I'm not interfering with wife time. Understood. Um, no, yeah, same here. But also, today. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> we are doing what that. What we're going to say is, yeah.